0: Welcome back to the Paleo View episode 392. We are no longer in the upside-down world and Sarah is coming at you strong with science this week. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just get to sit back.
1: <laughs> um, I uh I'm definitely more in my comfort zone, so it's uh yeah. Um, although I have to say I I quite enjoyed last week's episode where I, I got to just like pick your brain and be selfish and be like, what's up with toner? So um even though I'm I'm definitely I'm ready to nerd out because I um I'm really excited about this week's topic. Um one of the things I so first of all, Stacey, I need to tell you something. I am actually almost done my microbiome book. I'm not sure I believe it. <laughs> um, I, um, I think there's probably another three or four weeks of writing left. Um, and then probably a month of my editing before I can actually turn it into the publisher. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, I finished, um, I think it was last Wednesday, I finished the the chapter that I was putting off because I knew it was the hardest chapter, it was chapter three, but I was um, putting it off because I knew it was, it was the topic that um, required the most just digging through the literature to find, it literally was like, spend three hours researching and write a paragraph. If I'm lucky, it might be three hours of researching for two sentences. And the whole chapter was like that. And so I've, I've been putting it off. And then I finally decided like, the book doesn't get done unless this chapter gets done. And so I finally finished it after like six weeks just of nothing else but this chapter. Um, So I finished it last Wednesday. And it was, first of all, like the biggest relief to finally have that beast of a chapter behind me. But then I was able to take stock and was like, oh my gosh, it's now there's just missing piece here, missing piece there. This, you know, this piece needs to be expanded, but the book's basically t- has now taken shape. And it is such, cause the, I've been working on this book for over five years. So it's been such a huge task. Um, definitely by far, I mean, 10 times harder than anything else I've ever written because I think as our listeners know, we've, we've been, I've been incorporating a lot of that knowledge that I've gleaned in the research I've done for this microbiome book in our podcast, which is definitely going to come up in this episode as well. And, Um, And I'm sure our listeners can appreciate, you know, beyond maybe remembering like the couple really common bacterial strains, right, bifidobacterium and lactobacillus are the ones that you'll see on a label a lot. So those will kind of enter (laughs) a little bit into our, you know, understanding of of the gut microbiome. But it's such a complex ecosystem with completely pervasive effects on our health and extremely sensitive to our diet and lifestyle choices and um being able to not just dig through the literature to find all the pieces because this this just field of science is so huge but it's also so multidisciplinary so i'm reading incredibly different types of papers to get answers to the questions i have as i as i you know try to fill out all the information in this book it's not just that it's it's writing That information for a general audience is really challenging just because there's so many latin words there's you know so many different there's hundreds of bacterial species that are fairly well understood and their names are all like it's not like their names are like bob their names are all like 10 syllable long you know latin names and so being able to weave that into an interesting story it's it's um it's just been a huge challenge, and what I'm trying to do as I wrap up the book and, and really get into editing is try to try to bring in as many different visual devices for helping the reader keep all the information straight as they're going, because it is, it is v- just a very complex topic. But, um, and I think this is really relevant to our episode this week, one of the things that I have— really come to in, um, in this process. I like, there's been, I've had a huge amount of personal growth that has originated out of the process of writing this book in part because of my expanded knowledge base. Um, and in part, um, I think the, the act of just really digging into the sciences is not going to be a paleo book. I am building a new healthy diet and lifestyle from the ground up. will happen to look a whole lot like paleo at the end, Um, but there are some non-paleo foods that are really great for the gut microbiome. And it's also shifted my perspective. Nutrient density still gets um, this huge focus in my brain, but now these sort of gut microbiome superstar foods get equal, you know, they're equal status in my brain. And one of the foods that I have just, I've realized, needs to be its own food group needs to be emphasized that just does not get enough play, I think, in any health-conscious community is mushrooms. And we we did a an episode 307 over a year and a half ago, where we talked about this move to like medicinal mushroom extracts in everything. And that was really the just the beginning of my research into what mushrooms can do for us. Um, now that I've, you know, got you know a giant section in this book on mushrooms and I've I've you know really delved into this literature at this huge level of detail I've come to the point where I think mushrooms are their own food group I I think that um they are as important as vegetables as a food group or fruit or you know fish or meat right like it's it it earns that status instead of being lumped in as a sub vegetable right that you could maybe you know, saute with your steak, I, I really see them as being a foundational food. And so I wanted to sort of take this episode to kind of go through, like, what is it about mushrooms that has led me to that conclusion? But also because I've been talking about mushrooms more on social media, I have a huge collection of, um, of follower frequently asked questions to go over. I will just cover the, the, um, the highlights, I think, in this episode. We'll see how many we can get to. But I also kind of wanted to tackle some of the big questions that have come up on social media as I've started talking more about mushrooms because uh, they're awesome. I'm
0: really curious to find out as we go through this if there is a reason that I crave mushrooms with my steak. (laughs) As you mentioned, especially during my period, uh, like as I'm PMSing. Wow, that's interesting. It's one of the, so it's like broccoli and steak for iron. It's chocolate for magnesium. These are the things that I've, you know, just pulled out of a hat. <laughs> my own um, N equals one experiment. And it's mushrooms. And I've always thought that mushrooms was just simply because they're delicious with steak.
1: But now I'm like, they are delicious with steak. Mm, this is true. Wondering. I mean, unequivocally. Um, Well, let me know by the time we get through all the science on mushrooms, if you had a a little epiphany on Uh that, that that must be the thing in mushrooms. Yes, your aha moment. Um, But before we get into mushrooms as their own food group, um, I did want to make a shout out to this episode's sponsor, uh, which is the perfect sponsor for this episode. It is um, a company called Real Mushrooms. And I have... Fallen in love with everything they do. They um, provide super crazy high quality organic mushroom extracts. They do lab testing on every batch to actually verify that they have the beneficial compounds in them that they're supposed to have, like beta glucans, which we'll talk about, and like triterpenes, which we'll also talk about. And um, they're available as a powder, which is really easy to you know, throw into a smoothie. It actually um I hides very well in a cup of coffee. So I'll put a, a spoonful into my coffee in the morning. Um or you can, if you that's like too bitter and you don't want to do that, the they have capsules and they have a new um chocolate with five different mushroom extracts in it that is just delicious chocolate. Um so I think they're fantastic. I love this company. They um, They are quality nerds, which um, that's why we get along so well, because I think that's great. Um, So our listeners can get 25% off their order with no coupon needed when they go to realmushrooms.com slash LP dash the paleo view. I think
0: that what I loved when you introduced me to this brand was the testing and the organic nature and all of the Mm -hmm. kinds of things that really um, made me feel like, okay, if I'm going to take something like a supplement versus just eating something casually with my steak, um, that I want it to be the highest quality. I want it to have maximum nutrient density without a bunch of potentially harmful effects from pesticides when you concentrate something for example. So um yeah. I I love that about them. Um and I'm excited to learn more about why all that stuff matters because it was a long time ago when we talked about mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that a long time. Yeah, I'm sure not just is there um more information that you discovered but also just, you know, a year and a half there's Lots more information out there, so
1: um, that that's been my biggest challenge with this book is every time I think I'm finished a section, a new paper is published that is relevant um, but <laughs> that aside um, there's a few like overarching rationales for why I think mushrooms really need to be elevated to their own food group, and first, I think just looking at it botanically, they are not a plant they're not a vegetable, they're not a fruit. They're not a nut or seed, right? They, they don't fall into tax, taxonomy-wise. They don't fall into the plant kingdom. They are fungi. Um, so they're a very different type of life form. And when you think of it that way, right, you think about animal foods, plant foods, and fungal foods, right? Like we can separate them out that way. And it's it shouldn't come as a surprise when we think about how distantly related they are, on the sort of like tree of life, then you kind of go, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense then that they would have something nutritionally unique to offer us that you can't necessarily get from a plant or an animal. And that's absolutely true with uh, all different kinds of mushrooms um, and they really fall into two different categories. So one is um, what we would typically call phytochemicals with mushrooms. those are in particular those are phenolic compounds and triterpenes. and this is where a lot of our original episode on medicinal mushrooms focused. The other thing that mushrooms have, Um, that I think is really important is unique types of fiber that you cannot get from plant foods. Um, including three different classifications of fiber, chitin, chitazan, and beta-glucans. And we'll talk a little bit about the unique effects that those have on the gut microbiome. But even beyond that, mushrooms are extremely nutrient-dense. They, I mean, like, so impressive. They have almost no calories. So a Hundred gram serving of the least nutritionally impressive mushroom, like the bottom rung of the ladder, the white mushroom. Right, the most—that's the most common mushroom that most of us are going to find in a grocery store—is the white mushroom. They um, are the, you know, the really the the weakest link of the entire mushroom family, um, and yet they are crazy nutrient dense. So a hundred gram serving which would be uh, approximately a cup of mushrooms um, or a cup and a bit raw, contains 24% of the daily value of vitamin B2, 18% of B3, 15% of B5, 16% of copper, 13% of selenium, 9% of phosphorus and potassium each. And they still have, you know, 3 to 6-ish percent of B1, B6, folate, vitamin C, vitamin D2, iron, magnesium, manganese, and zinc. And get this, that, all of those nutrients, 100 100 grams of, of white mushrooms, 22 calories. Like, your nutrient per calorie ratio there is phenomenal, I think what's awesome about that
0: is as someone who no longer counts calories or focuses right. on them, yeah. I think what's what the message there is that it that is the definition of nutrient density. When we're getting that much value per energy unit, right? Like I think yeah. there's a lot of dogma <laughs> caught up in calories that I try to avoid these days. But when we say nutrient density, when we say um, foods that nourish like this is what we mean this this is what is helping heal your body and making it feel its best and all that jazz
1: yeah I um I don't want to emphasize the low caloric value to emphasize uh calories in general but rather as a that is the definition of nutrient density is nutrients per as you said energy value and this this is a shining example of a nutrient dense food. I mean, to be able to get, you know, 10 to 25% of the daily value of essential vitamins and minerals for such a negligible energy contribution to the diet, what that does is it, um, buys us flexibility in other food choices, um, and allows us to take, um, what I think is a, is a much healthier approach to food. So I like to really think about the, the nutrient density of the diet as a whole and think about then, you know, where are my superstars? Where are my superstar foods? And mushrooms definitely, definitely qualify as a superstar. Um, but I think that as sort of, as I mentioned, where mushrooms really stand out is they have, um, like polyphenols and other phenolics that are, completely unique, Um, and then a different class of phytochemicals called triterpenes that are completely (laughs) unique. In addition to fiber, and this is taking a a brief step backwards, um, both antioxidant phytochemicals and fiber type are really, really important for the gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome is actually very, very sensitive to the um, phytochemicals that we're consuming as well as the types of fiber. And the phytochemicals that we're consuming, we only absorb about 5% of them unmodified. The other 95% that we absorb are actually modified by our gut bacteria. So it's one of those things where they're feeding our gut bacteria in a really positive way, and then the metabolites that our healthy gut bacteria are making are feeding us in a really positive way. So it's a really good example of the symbiotic relationship that we have with our gut bacteria where we're both benefiting from living together in this wonderful human package that we have going. So of the phenolics, um, I mean, uh, they're, they're ubiquitously antioxidant. Um, they're almost all really potent anti-inflammatories, they have a variety of other benefits, some stronger than others. So, some protect against cardiovascular disease, some protect against liver damage, some have antiviral properties, some um, can uh, kill cancer cells or reduce risk of cancer. And so, they 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 really all have this like lengthy list of benefits. Um, some of the really exciting ones in mushrooms inc- include, and we're going to—I'm going to take a stab at some really long names—and our listeners are going to just nod and be happy and assume that I'm obviously pronouncing all of these correctly. So, uh, they have protocatechuic acid, um, which is a anti-cancer, anti-cardiovascular disease superstar, but it's also really important for liver health. Can help protect against ulcers. Um, it's got antiviral and antibacterial properties, gentisic acid, very important anti-inflammatory, actually potentially anti-rheumatic properties as well, and can actually protect against radiation damage, which is kind of cool. Gallic acid, and on top of all of those other types of anti-cardiovascular disease, anti-cancer Benefits. Um, also, there's some preliminary studies showing that it might prove useful in the treatment of depression, which is just an interesting. I don't want to go so far as say, you know, if you <laughs> if you have clinical depression, please seek a doctor, um, and um, you know, make make good medically supervised choices. Um, but gallic acid ha- does have this um, mental health benefit, so it could be part of an overall diet and lifestyle overhaul and treatment plan. Um, Vanillic acid um, actually has on top of its, again, anti-cardiovascular disease, uh, anti-liver disease, wonderful benefits. Also can act as a pain reliever. Uh, P. cumaric acid, on top of, again, um, benefits to immune system. It also has some antidepressant um, effects. It... um, can help protect the kidneys and improve bone mineral density, which is pretty cool. Cynamic uh, acid has a like really huge antimicrobial property, so it's antibacterial, antiviral, and antifungal. And it's been shown, um, at least in animal studies, to protect against cancer and diabetes. Syringic acid also has anti-diabetes effects and you know, protects the liver. Uh, reduces risk of cancer, and also can protect the lung against damage. Uh, Miracetin, that that one I really don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but this one's really cool because on top of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, anti-diabetic, protects against cardiovascular disease and liver damage, like we're starting to see, right, thematic. It also has been shown, at least, again, in animal studies, to protect against neurodegenerative diseases, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Uh, catechin. Now, catechin is really interesting because this is one of the same um, really important polyphenols in green tea. Um, but we can also get those from mushrooms. So they, again, sort of have this like broad anti-inflammatory, um, antibacterial anti-cancer. They also can help uh, shift the gut microbiome towards one that is associated with um, healthy weight maintenance. So um, there's this really interesting shift that happens uh, in weight gain and obesity where the gut microbiome shifts towards one that's more inflammatory, but also um, it's a chicken and the egg thing. So you can actually shift the microbiome to what would be called an obesity microbiome, and they've done this in mice with like fecal microbiota transplants, and the mice will gain weight even without changing their diet, without changing their caloric intake. Um, so, so that's a really big deal to be able to say that a polyphenol can help reverse that change, because if you then do another fecal microbiota transplant and put like a lean microbiome into those same mice, for example. Um, they will lose weight and they will achieve a healthier weight. So there's a really interesting link, and it's chicken and egg because that obesity microbiome is also driven by s- typical Western diet and overeating and stress and inadequate sleep and you know sedentary behavior, but then it's also driving weight gain. So um, being able to draw some links to some food compounds that can help to correct an obesity microbiome is really exciting.
0: That's crazy. So, yeah, the mouse. Let's just say is is living a standard American lifestyle, right? <laughs> and um, we've we've talked about fecal transplants on the show before, and my brain always explodes a little at the idea and the results. And um, I'm like one of those people that tangentially is like. I think that'd be really good for me. But it's not <laughs> yeah. something I'm ready to explore.
1: So mm.
0: the idea that maybe you Don't want get, to
1: interview donors?
0: Uh, you know, um, <laughs> I just, I'm going to move right on. You know how I feel <laughs> about poop talk right now. My whole face is just red.
1: No, you, this is mind-blowing science. The first study showing this was in 2013. And um, they basically took uh, what are called germ-free mice. So these are mice that, um, are grown microbially sterile. Um, they're, they're sterile. <laughs> they, so they have no microbiome. And what's really fascinating about these, there's a ton of studies that are done in microbiome that use these mice because they're like a blank slate and you can literally add one strain or three strains. You can, you can really control, um, what strains are going on. So you can completely measure the impact of different species of bacteria. So a lot of what we know from gut microbiome research uses germ-free mice and they have some like physiological and anatomical abnormalities. So like they need, um, because our gut microbiomes help us digest food, they liberate uh, minerals from our food and make those easier to absorb. They form a lot of vitamins. So these mice, um, need more food they need um, nutrient supplements in order to stay healthy like there's there's uh, a lot of like there's a lot of adaptation that ha- has to happen in terms of raising these mice so that they can be healthy because they don't have a microbiome which is fascinating in itself and so then what they do is they take these mice and they've done fecal microbiota transplants from obese mice that were fed a western style diet and then the mice just eating still normal chow will gain weight um, or they've put in a lean mouse's microbiome and given them a high fat diet. And at least over the short term until their microbiomes shift in response to that diet, they don't gain weight. So, um, so the first, the first study doing this was in 2013. That's, that's not, I feel like that's not that long ago. I feel like that was just yesterday. Don't you think that was just yesterday? What did you say? 1998? 2013. <laughs> like, What? Yes. 98, 98 feels same, like a little longer ago same
0: thing i mean 1998 yeah, approximately. 2013 approximately same time yeah no what's interesting to me is that's when our kids were born and i think that's why we think it was like not so i mean they weren't like born in 2013 but you know what i mean like yeah. was a toddler um anyway that's it definitely a complete changes, side. yeah no
1: no i per, per, Parenthood changes uh,
0: perception of time. For of sure. time, for sure. And I think your mind often gets stuck in time uh, time periods where life events happened. I don't know if this mm-hmm. is true, like, scientifically. But for me, I know my brain has a lot of memories around, for example, graduating high school, starting college, graduating college, having children. Like, those memories are particularly stronger for me. So, for what that's worth? Just a complete side tangent.
1: Moving right along. An excellent side tangent. Um, So I I don't want to dive into triterpenes in too much detail in this episode because we did talk about this um, in our medicinal mushroom episode 307, but it is worthwhile just sort of quickly summarizing that um, triterpenes are this really unique class of phytochemicals that have particularly strong anti-cancer, um, effects. So they've actually, there, there have been some cancer drugs that have been developed from some triterpenes that have been isolated from mushrooms. Um, I don't, you know, there, there's no cure for cancer out of this. Like, let me emphasize that there's nothing It's they're all adjuncts, right. That are, that are layered on top of other therapies. Um, but It is a really exciting group of chemicals that mushrooms have and that are unique, right? Um, Certainly in these kinds of concentrations. There have been over 80 different triterpenes that have been isolated just from reishi mushrooms. So um, this is a really exciting group of compounds that we're getting every time we eat mushrooms. The more bitter the mushroom, typically triterpenes are a very bitter compound, so they're more bitter. The mushroom typically the higher the triterpene concentration, um, and it's why like medicinal mushrooms tend to be really really high in triterpenes, um, but they also tend to be extremely bitter, right? They're not much. They're not culinary mushrooms. Um, they're not mushrooms that you would eat with your steak, for example. Just because they're so bitter, but they're so bitter because they have this really high concentration of triterpenes. Um, and there's some other impacts that triterpenes have that I think beyond the anti-cancer effects that are are um, worthwhile summarizing. so they also have cardioprotective effects, so they can reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. Again, this is at least in animal models where we can dose really high and control the situation and and measure things. So what the equivalent to you know how much ratio would you have to have to have the same effect in a human that 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 is not yet known. Um, but we can look at these mechanisms and then understand why there are some links between higher mushroom diets and and better health outcomes. Um, and the other one I thought that um is also gonna come up again with um in our frequently asked questions from um people who have been very excited about my pro mushroom stance on social media lately. Is that um, triterpenes are also able to inhibit histamine release from mast cells, so that can help control allergies. Um, so that also has has some a re- just a really interesting health effect that can have a lot of relevance. So that's just the like phytochemical side of mushrooms. Then there's the whole fiber side, and the, I think the fiber side is honestly this is even more exciting to me because. Their fiber structures, even beta glucans, which you can get beta glucans from grains. Oats are like a really rich source of beta glucans, but the the type of beta glucan that we're getting from mushrooms, they're called one three one six beta glucans, whereas oats have one four beta glucans, right? So it's even a different like subtype of that fiber type. And that probably explains why the impact of mushrooms is so crazy beneficial on the gut microbiome. So all three of these unique fibers that we're getting either exclusively from fungi or predominantly from fungi are all beneficial for the gut microbiome. They all support the growth of really key probiotic species. They all um, create a microbiome that's associated with leanness, they can reverse an obesity microbiome. They can create an, a microbiome that's associated with anti-inflammatory effects, right? So they can reverse a microbiome that's associated with inflammation. and they all drive diversity. So diversity is one of the, um, one of the standard measures of a healthy gut microbiome. So it is there there it is possible to have a, diverse gut microbiome that is still dysbiotic, but that's a fairly unusual situation. Generally, the more diverse, the better. So chitin is um, a fiber type that has been recognized for a long time as a really important type, type of fiber in mushrooms. Um, we can also get it from insect exoskeletons, uh, shellfish shells, and fish scales. So those are the other ways to get this fiber type that some people might want to eat instead of mushrooms fish scales yeah Mm -hmm. sure insect exoskeletons that's
0: my regular snack on tuesdays Mm -hmm. that's what i was thinking
1: so Chitin has been shown to support uh, Bifidobacterium, Lactobacillus, those ones that, you know, those really key probiotics that most of us remember the names, um, but also, you know, a huge variety of other really important ones like Acromantia, L- Bacteroides. They decrease inflammatory microbes like Dul-Sulvo-Fibrio. Um, They can help to correct... The um, Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes ratio that's skewed in o- obesity, um, and so they they um, this just really seems to be a, a very critically important fiber. And I think it's important to sort of emphasize that the impact. So our our gut bacteria basically have like a favorite food. So just like you wouldn't feed your cat dog food and when you feed your dog cat food on a regular basis because they're not going to be healthy eating the opposite foods, right? Their nutritional needs are slightly different. It's the same thing with species of bacteria in our digestive tract. They really have a specific food that is what the food that makes them healthiest. And when it comes to fiber types, very small differences in the molecular structure of a fiber can make a huge difference in terms of what species of bacteria is being supported by that fiber type. So even though there's a lot of other things that would support Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus, chitin is supporting subspecies, um, species and subspecies that are a little bit different. So chitin is. Sp- For example, specifically fantastic for Bifidobacterium animalis, which is a great Bifidobacterium species to have. So um, it's really important to recognize that chitin is independently beneficial for the gut microbiome. So you would want to, for the most diverse, healthiest, biggest number of probiotic strains microbiome that you could possibly have, you'd want to be layering chitin fiber onto, right? and beta glucans from mushrooms, but also, um, you know, cellulose and hemicellulose and uh, lignin and pectin from fruits and vegetables. So you want to be able to have as many different fiber types in the diet as a whole as possible. And the reason why I want to emphasize that is um, because chitin is really exclusive to fungi and some other foods that are not um, as commonly found in the Western diet, let's put it that way, It's really important to layer mushrooms, right, to view mushrooms as their own thing and to have them in addition to fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds for a healthy gut microbiome because they add to the benefits of all of these other fiber types. So it's not just about total fiber. It's about the diversity of fiber. Uh, Chitazin is uh, actually an interest related. It's a related fiber type to chitin, um, but this one is only found in... The cell walls of fungi, like mushrooms, and um, while it's been shown to, you know, increase microbial diversity, um, to definitely have a anti-diabetic effect at the level of the microbiome, because our microbiome is very, very strongly linked to diabetes. It's also been shown to suppress the growth of pathogenic bacteria like E. coli, like Shigella, and like Helicobacter pylori. So it has these, this dual effect of supporting diversity, supporting growth of probiotic strains, but also suppressing pathogens, which is an ideal situation for a functional food. So the glucans I mentioned, um, the, the two dominant food sources of glucans in the human diet are grains, particularly oats, and mushrooms. And as I mentioned, they're they're sort of different structures. Um, They have a lot of impact in common. So beta-glucans in general can support bifidobacterium, roseburia, which are really important as well, eubacterium, dialister. Um, They also can um, decrease levels of potential pathogens. They can also shift away from an obesity-associated or a diabetes-associated microbiome. Um, They can also support some lactobacillus species. But what's really interesting is that specifically the glucans from mushrooms are fairly well known to not just shift the microbiome towards a healthier, more diverse microbiome, but also increase levels of short chain fatty acids, which are a metabolite of our bacteria. So they eat fiber and they create short-chain fatty acids, acetic acid, butyric acid, and propionic acid. And these are probably the most important metabolites of our gut bacteria. Um, Butyrate or butyric acid in particular is used as a fuel source by all of our gut epithelial cells, so all of our gut barrier cells. Um, and it's directly linked to the health of our gut barrier lining, to our intestinal permeability. So, just having more butyrate production in the gut can decrease intestinal permeability. That means reversing leaky gut. And so, it's um, what's really fascinating about beta glucans is it's not just supporting the growth of beneficial species, but it's also showing in their metabolism. Um, and also showing beneficial metabolites being produced, so that is um, that's a really big deal. So when you take all of that together, so right? Nutrient dense food, unique fiber types you can't get from any other food or any other easy nutrient dense food, um, unique phytochemicals, um, and phytochemicals with diverse beneficial properties. Like all together, we take all that and go there's no other food, there's no other food that can provide this to us. So if there's no other food that can provide this to us, that means this food should be a foundational food, right? That elevates this food to a higher status. Um, Just like we would say, you know, we need, um, we need food sources of vitamin C, for example. So we're going to elevate fruits and vegetables and we need um, animal formed vitamin A. So we're going to elevate, you know, meat and seafood, right? There's nutrients in those foods that you can't get easily from across the, the spectrum, right? B12, we need animal foods. Um, phytochemicals, generally we need fruits and vegetables. Mushrooms just have this unique thing to offer us. And when you look at it that way, you kind of go, oh, yeah, mushrooms are uh an amazing an amazing thing and i want to encourage everyone to stop thinking of them as just another vegetable and start thinking of them as their own food group
0: i think it's quite fascinating um in your research do you have what you would see as recommendations based on volume i mean we've talked about Mm -hmm. people getting, um, a minimal amount of variety in grocery stores. Um, and so when we look at the science on how much it can do, um, especially from like a a gut health perspective is fascinating to me. Um, I do have a, a separate question about immune function, because I know that was a question that we've gotten before as well. But mm-hmm. when we're looking at um, variety and quantity and that kind of stuff, are you seeing in the literature where you start to see results? Like, I- I'm sure there was, they have to have some sort of like measure by which they are proving this science. That's my, that's, that's my very <laughs> layman's term.
1: <laughs> like, that is... An excellent question and also a frequently asked question online. Um, So a a serving size is is defined for mushrooms the same way it's defined for vegetables. So that's about 80 to 100 grams, be one cup raw or about a half cup cooked. So they're just a serving size is just sort of defined that way. It doesn't come from that piece doesn't come from science of like how much do we need for a functional effect. But if you start to, like, assume that that's what a serving size is and then look at some of the really interesting perspective studies that have looked at mushroom consumption in various populations, there's been um, studies done in the U.S. and a lot of studies done in China and Japan um, looking at, you know, how much mushrooms do, does this group of people eat versus this group of people eat? We correct for as many other things as we can and then look at health outcomes. And that's where I think a um, minimum dose recommendation can potentially come from. So the strongest effects are seen in cancer research. So um, the bas- like the more mushrooms you eat, the lower risk of breast cancer or prostate cancer. Um, the the data right now is fairly mixed on uh, type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease events. So there's some studies that show the more mushrooms you eat, the better, and some show null effect. So right now, um, those fields of study are just more more data is, is needed to really be able to tease out the effect. Um, but from the cancer studies, there's some there's some really good direction that we can take. So for example, there was a recent study. Um, out of Asia that looked at mushroom consumption, servings per week, and looked at the um, impact on prostate cancer risk, and compared people who ate mushrooms less than once a week to one to two times per week to three times or more per week, and basically showed that you know putting people into those tertials um, showed that there was a benefit of eating mushrooms. So um, the one to two times a week mushroom consumers had an 8% lower risk of developing prostate cancer, and the three times or more mushroom consumers had a 17% lower risk of developing prostate cancer. So there was a pretty dramatic dose response over servings per week. But that's um, these types of prospective studies basically takes a lot of people and then finds out how many mushrooms they eat. Um, it's like the early studies in vegetables that only went up to five or more servings a week because it was so hard to find people who ate six or seven or eight or 10 or 14. So you're sort of limited in terms of you're basically putting your top third of all of your study into that one group. So you have to define it low enough that you ha- can have a third of your study in that group. Um, with uh, There's a recent breast cancer study that actually – Um, it was a a meta-analysis. So they actually took a whole, I think they had eight different studies that actually met their criteria, if I remember correctly. And what they did was they actually did their analysis not by servings per week, but by average number of grams per day. So they were looking at how much mushrooms people had in a week and then dividing that into an average gram per day. And this was really cool because what they actually showed was that there was a linear relationship. So for every gram of mushroom per day, so gram being like one eightieth to 1% of a serving, <laughs> that there was about a 1.2% decrease in breast cancer risk. Um, so most of the studies, when you actually dig into that meta-analysis, most of the studies show you start to really be able to measure benefits at about 10 grams a day. So that's literally like a mushroom per day is enough to start seeing some benefit at least from a cancer risk perspective um but that there's there's um there's basically a like the more the merrier at this point. I have not seen a study that's been able to show where that effect caps off at. So presumably it will, like presumably there is a number of servings per week of mushrooms beyond which you're not getting an additional benefit. Um, we see that in other foods, right? So we see nuts are a really good example. Um, we see that one to one and a half ounces of nuts per day, um, is sort of maximum for benefits and get much more than that. You're not getting an additional benefit. So you're getting, um, a, a statistical benefit for chronic disease risk from consuming, you know, and as little as half an ounce up to about an ounce and a half of nuts or seeds per day. Um, and then above which there's, there's no additional benefit. So presumably there is a cap for mushrooms as well. I just haven't seen that in the literature. So I would say kind of like big picture looking at all of that, I can tell you that I aim to add mushrooms to a meal uh most days but i'm happy if i can do it every other day
0: okay i think that's reasonable especially when we're talking about approximately 47 servings of vegetables a day right approximately 47
1: (laughs) just make one of them swap it out for mushrooms because we're not going to think of mushrooms as vegetables anymore
0: i feel very sad for wesley because it's the one food he won't eat have you tried raw yes um It is a texture thing for him. So I'm really um, thinking about giving him the real mushrooms chocolate and Mm. seeing
1: if... Texturally, that's pretty fantastic. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know
0: what I'm saying? Like, I feel like if it's really a texture thing, um, as he says it is,
1: that could be a solution. That's a great solution. Um, I can tell you, so uh, I think it was about maybe a year ago. Or a little over a year ago, I started really working on increasing the variety of mushrooms that we're consuming in our house and how often we're consuming them. And my kids still will not eat like a straight sautéed mushroom, which I just think is crazy because that's obviously delicious. But I have slowly started including, um, and I, I use a mix. So I use shiitake, oyster, cremini, white mushrooms, portobello mushrooms, like whatever. I try to get a little bit of everything that I can get at the store when I'm at the store each week so that we're having three to five different varieties of mushroom cooked in our meals every week on top of (laughs) real mushrooms to, to increase variety even more. And, um, and so one of the things I've found is I can pretty, if I slice them thinly enough, I can put them into just about anything. So I can put them into a super stew, a, we had last night, we had a frittata that had about a pound of mushrooms in it. Um, I can put it into, my kids really like things like chicken pot pie I mean it's pretty much a vessel for pie crust um but I've started you know I just make sure that there's something that's like that type of meal every single week but I can even like chop it up really fine and add it to ground beef for any kind of mince type um you know we do a, a lettuce wrap um, every you know maybe up to once a week maybe every other week um, so I started just adding mushrooms to that so they they don't. Amira loves them raw and she'll eat, she eats them raw for lunch every single day. She's decided they're one of her favorite foods. She says she doesn't like them cooked, but if they're in something, she doesn't even flinch. So um, one of the things I did with that was I, I experimented with like how small of pieces, like how unrecognizable as mushrooms do these need to be in order for my kids to not notice them Um, because it is a textural thing. So definitely like changing the, the, the shape of how I'm cutting them changes the textual experience. And then I slowly started increasing how, how much mushroom adding to each of those things, like very slowly over, I think it's been about a year since I basically completed this research and went, oh yeah, this is, we, (laughs) we need to, we need to work on our mushroom consumption as a family. The other things I'm thinking,
0: um, could be good slash we do are, gravies and like a mushroom soup Mm. type base. Right. So it's very Mm -hmm. easy to blend roasted vegetables into a gravy to thicken it. That's one of my favorite ways. And the umami of mushrooms is really great. So, um, you could either saute them or roasted mushrooms are really delicious just for Mm -hmm. snacking on and just FYI. Um, but they're good blended into a gravy, and also kind of like you were saying from a pot pie perspective. If you think like when we were growing up, I don't know, maybe yours wasn't like this because I was a vegetarian when we were growing up. Um, my mom would put cream of mushroom soup and like
1: everything. It was like, no, that was that was true even in our that North was just the eighties, right? That yeah, was, yep, that was, yep, that was that was that decade. Uh-huh. So.
0: I'm thinking there's a ton of recipes that you could do that with and make your own version of a mushroom soup. Mm -hmm. Whether you find a recipe online, you know, I can think of a dozen off the top of my head um, that could be coconut based or cashew based or, you know, whatever your dietary needs are. And then if you have a batch of that, you can just add it to um, like casseroles and all of that kind of stuff in delicious ways. Um, Our boys... Like I said, Wesley doesn't eat mushrooms, but our boys really like uh, mushrooms and scrambled eggs. I know it's kind of like a weird thing, but we always have mushrooms in the fridge. It's m- like Matt's favorite vegetable. So if we ever make scrambled eggs, we usually do, um, like mushrooms. And if we have greens, I'll put a handful of greens in there just because it's good for them. But, um, they like it almost like an
1: omelet, but we scramble it cause we're lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you pretty much described my frittata that we had for dinner last night. So that does not sound weird to me at all.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what other, because I really like to add mushrooms. I do like this leftover stir fry thing during the week. And I like find things in the fridge, whether it be cauliflower rice or regular rice, because um, I do that. Just hold on to your pants. (laughs) Sometimes I eat rice. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, whatever the base is, right? And then I just add in leftover vegetables. Matt has this habit. Do you do this, Sarah? It drives me nuts of using up like three quarters of something when he's making dinner. So like if I get Heads of broccoli. Let's say there's two full big heads of broccoli. Instead of using both, I think he has this like apocalypse mentality that we need that last quarter of a head of broccoli, and he like <laughs> save. And I'm like, what are you saving this for? It's just gonna go bad. Just put it in the dinner. So what I've started doing now that I'm home during the day is taking all those like <laughs> pieces of vegetables that are bit. left over and putting them into a stir fry. And inevitably, there's always mushrooms um, from the breakfast or whatever. So um, they go really well into uh, like, whether it's a fried rice or just like a regular stir fry, the sweet potato noodles are super fantastic. They're just basically a place to like dump flavor because not only are mushrooms good for you, but they have that special thing Mm -hmm. called umami, um, which is an unctuous flavor that only a small handful of foods can deliver with like extra flavor. Um, So I always try to add them whenever possible just because it's providing, like, a a depth of flavor. Um, It goes really well with coconut aminos and garlic. That's just my personal preference. (laughs) Like, Mm. if you're going to add a flavor profile to those things, those would be my my two to say go with it and run with it.
1: Yeah. um, In answer to your question, I don't... I tend to You're, use. You don't save vegetables I don't for save, the apocalypse? Not, not. <laughs> I, so I might not use the full bag of something, but that's because I have a plan for the rest of it for something else. Or like it's either generally, most of the time, it's like, and tonight's the night I'm cooking all of the green beans. I might make four different vegetables and we don't eat all of it in one meal. We'll eat it over the next three nights. But no, I don't normally just like cook half of the vegetables and leave the rest.
0: I love for you, the apocalypse. husband, Matthew McCary, but your habit of <laughs> he's saving, saving it for your stir fries. I don't know what he's doing. What did he do before my stir fries? Like all those vegetables went bad. And sometimes I'll be going through the fridge and it's like literally a quarter of an onion. And I'm like, what are you doing with this? Like, why couldn't <laughs> you just use it all? It's like, I don't know. Anyway, it's a good way to use up your mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> left over by your weird husband. Um, cool. So if you're not getting mushrooms from food or based on all these benefits, you want to add mushrooms because there's seemingly no end to what they can do for your health. Um, definitely check out Real Mushrooms, the sponsor of our podcast. Thank you. It's the first time they've sponsored our show. So let's give them extra special Yay. high five. Raise the roof. Um You can get 25% off at realmushrooms.com slash LP dash the paleo view. And I will say this is great to get additional sources of mushrooms for someone, for example, like Wesley, or if you have particular questions about some of the health stuff that you think it could benefit, like for me, I'm, I'm like, ooh, with all this... Uh, benefit, I think it would be a good idea for me to add a whole bunch. So it's not just like mushrooms that you're getting. It's that they've taken those mushrooms and extracted them for the beneficial medicinal benefits um, of all the things that Sarah's talked about without a bunch of fillers so that you're getting um, a concentrated boost, so to speak, to your health. Um, And I forgot I did have one question for you though, Sarah. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so last time we had the mushroom show, I must have heard from several people afterwards that they had heard from other AIP bloggers. And we've talked about on the show before to making sure that whoever you're hearing things from, you need to check their sources and learn for yourself, make make informed decisions. Um, But they had heard from other bloggers that mushrooms are actually bad for people with autoimmune disease because it does all this stuff to the immune system that it's actually agitating it. Can you just speak like directly to that so that we address the yeah. questions that will inevitably come
1: up? Um, yeah. So Um. yeah, so let's take a few minutes to kind of like hit as many of these types of FAQs as possible. Um, this one's a really good question. So the early research on, Medicinal mushroom extracts, in particular, um, were done in the context of cancer and how the immune system is failing in cancer is sort of opposite to how it's failing in autoimmune disease. So, very often, something that stimulates the immune system so that it can fight cancer would would actually cause an autoimmune. Flare. So, um, if you're looking at something that's manipulating the immune system in such a way that can activate, you know, cytotoxic T cells, for example, to help fight cancer, that's going to be something that's potentially going to, to be problematic, and at least in a subset of autoimmune disease. So the early research on medicinal mushroom extracts were really focused on the cancer effects and showed some reasons why this might not be the best thing for autoimmune disease sufferers. If you're going to be activating some of these um, pathways, suppressing regulatory T-cells, which are overactive in cancer but underactive in autoimmune disease, um, activating TH1 and TH2 cells, which are underactive in cancer and overactive in autoimmune disease, that you can kind of look at that research and go, yeah, that's that. You know, that's not going to translate to somebody with autoimmune disease. The research from the last couple of years has really expanded our understanding of how mushroom extracts are modulating the immune system, and it looks in general, like it's much more of an immune modulatory effect. So it is bringing balance to the immune system rather than stimulating a subset of the immune system. So there have been some studies in autoimmune disease, especially with reishi, that have shown that it's benefiting the immune function and autoimmune disease as well, which means you're you're balancing the immune system because it's context dependent how the effect is. Now, my stance on medicinal mushroom extracts for autoimmune disease at this point, because I would really like to see more data before I do a broad sweeping, all medicinal mushroom extracts are fine for autoimmune disease. I recommend caution. I recommend um, you know, talking it through with your healthcare provider before doing a medicinal mushroom extract for autoimmune disease. Um, they haven't all been studied in all possible autoimmune contexts. So at this point, there's a lot of missing pieces of information that would help like firmly put medicinal mushroom extracts in the AIP Yes column. So for now, it is a gray area, um, and I would just recommend... Uh, That if you're going to play with medicinal mushroom extracts, to play with them cautiously. Um, That being said, you know, the current research really points to mushrooms having broadly anti inflammatory effects across the board. Even like white mushrooms have been shown to be anti inflammatory. Um, The best studied anti inflammatory mushrooms are reishi, which I just mentioned, also having some compelling. Um, studies in autoimmune disease. Also, Mitaki and turkey tail have been shown to have really particularly strong anti-inflammatory effects, even though all mushrooms can reduce inflammation. And it seems as though um, generally mushrooms are um, mediating the anti-inflammatory effects through their benefits on the gut microbiome. Um, So there's also some benefit in terms of not just the gut microbiome, but on gut barrier health, probably because our gut bacteria control our gut barrier. But there have been some kind of exciting studies showing, um, like Reishi in particular, was shown to reverse gut dysbiosis in mice, but also lowered endotoxemia. So, lowered the level of this very inflammatory to- bacterial toxin from gram negative bacteria getting into the blood. And endotoxemia is pretty much linked with all chronic illnesses, but it seems to be especially common in autoimmune disease. So there's these other effects of medicinal mushroom extracts that um, at least with what we know now seem very promising. Um, but again, we're we're at a level right now with these extracts where uh, if you have autoimmune disease, I would just say talk about it with your healthcare provider. Um, Proceed with caution, um, just because there is there is a a decent amount of um, missing data in the scientific literature at this point.
0: And so, when you say watch out, people would just be looking for um,
1: triggers of their autoimmune disease or other signs of inflammation in general. Yeah, just like you would, um, you know, be tackling reintroductions on the autoimmune protocol. You're going to look for any sign of. Uh, a food sensitivity response or allergy response, um, so that can be any kind of GI symptom. You're going to look for um, any uh, mental health type, you know, brain health type, right? So anything from a headache to mood disorders to trouble sleeping. And you're going to look for anything that is anything with your skin Um, So any kind of skin craziness, and then also anything that is directly a symptom of your autoimmune disease. So it's sort of the same very comprehensive list of symptoms that you would do with any reintroduction. Um, So I think tackling it that way is obviously the most methodical way to tackle it. Um, I mean, and I would say any supplement can be Approached that same way again, always with medical supervision. But when you're talking about a supplement, now I, sh- I should say that whole mushrooms, that even if they're like shiitake, which are commonly used for mushroom extracts, whole mushrooms have always been a part of the autoimmune protocol um, across the board. It's the mushroom extracts that um, are like a concentrated biological effect that have that hit this kind of gray area, um, and so. You know, like any supplement that you're going to take with autoimmune disease, um, making sure that you're being supervised by a a medical professional is um, a wise, a wise way to go about it. Makes sense.
0: Um, Okay. Well, I totally interjected earlier. Um, What are some of the other questions that you hear Most often,
1: like I know you were saying, go ahead. So, um, one of the, I would say it's sort of like a myth going around that mushrooms should only be eaten cooked. Um, and I've actually sort of dug into this research a little bit. Um, and it's, um, interesting because it looks like the picture with mushrooms is the same as vegetables and seaweeds that have been studied fairly well, that when you cook it, you, liberate some nutrients you form some nutrients you lose some others and you just get a slightly different effect on your health with cooked versus raw um when you look at vegetables and sea vegetables you basically go like yeah obviously we just want to sometimes cook them and sometimes not and just kind of mix it up and with mushrooms it seems to generally be the same so when you cook them you will increase the total fiber um but that's due to a large increase in insoluble fiber. you lose some soluble and you lose some chitin um, so there there is some loss of some good stuff, although you are getting some other good stuff being formed um, and There are studies also that have looked at different types of cooking methods and basically shown that they all cause um, a loss of polyphenols and total antioxidant activity, but that you're also gaining some of the glucans. So there's, um, basically it, it kind of, right. The heat will unravel some of the fiber structures. So you're sort of changing the type of fiber that'll change the type of species that will grow. There's been studies done in uh, sea vegetables that have sort of compared what species will grow when it's cooked versus not cooked, and basically shown that it's it's really ch- changing which type of. It's all beneficial, right? It's all feeding beneficial species, but one will feed, say, lactic acid producing bacteria more, and the other one will feed butyrate producing producing bacteria more. So it really just shows that there's benefits to both, and I would say um, mix it up. Um, some species of mushrooms, I think, taste better cooked and some taste better raw. Um, so I would say just, uh, figure out how you like them and eat them that way. I think that makes sense. I
0: have heard a lot of people talk about, well, when you cook something, it changes the chemical structure. It's like, yep, that's, yep, that's, <laughs> that's what he does. That's a thing. So, um, that's good though. Um, what, what else are you hearing about?
1: (laughs) Um, yeah, I, so I'm also, um, there's sort of, um, there's a lot of questions surrounding mushrooms and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, digestive issues, you know, can they cause diarrhea or GI um, discomfort, pain, um, and mushroom extracts have, have never been tested in the context of SIBO, but they have been shown to very potently kill candida. Um, reishi especially has been well studied, um, to, to inhibit candida growth. Um, and given what we know about mushrooms supporting microbial diversity, inhibiting the growth of pathogens, at least on paper, you would look at that and say this should be beneficial in the context of SIBO. But again, that has never actually been, there's never been a study that has taken a bunch of people with SIBO or animals with SIBO and given the mushroom extracts and seen if that has a corrective effect. So that last piece of scientific information that we need to really confirm an effect doesn't exist, but it does in the context of candida. Um, and really there's, there's no um, good reason for, mushrooms or mushroom extracts to be causing GI issues other than an allergy or a food intolerance. So if a mushroom extract is causing GI pain or diarrhea, sometimes, um, sometimes strongly microbial corrective foods uh, in the context of gut dysbiosis, there can be a transition period where there is an increase in GI symptoms. So there, 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 that is a real effect. Um, it's sometimes, um, it's sometimes mislabeled as herxing, but it's, it's not really the same thing. Um, but generally if you're eating a food and it's, you know, very obviously stimulating diarrhea, that's generally, uh, a sign of a sensitivity or an allergy to that food.
0: Everybody out. (laughs) That's it. Thank you very much for finding so many opportunities to talk about this show
1: um it's um really my favorite way to make you feel uncomfortable i am literally like my shoulders
0: are starting to curl and it's a situation um you know what's interesting i've been getting a lot of questions about and i'm curious if this is relative to the context of mushrooms which is histamine intolerance like Mm -hmm. i've been hearing about it a lot from people who have it that say they can't do collagen. So I'm assuming it's also going to affect something like someone
1: would ask whether or not it's yeah. going to affect um, with mushrooms. So it it's helpful to sort of make us the, the statement that histamine intolerance is often driven by gut dysbiosis. Um, so it's a combination of a gut microbiome that is over-converting the amino acid, acid histidine into histamine, Along with um, if your gut barrier is not particularly healthy, um, it's your um, gut epithelial cells that are producing deamine oxidase, um, oxidase, for example, which is um, one of the main histamine reducing enzymes so it's that sort of imbalance that that combination that's driving histamine intolerance um mushrooms are a low histamine food so there was a paper in like 1997 which really was a long time ago um that was (laughs) it really was that's that's relative to 1998 or 2013 exactly (laughs) yes Um, so, so it was, um, one of my go-to papers that just measured the amount of histamine in just a variety of different foods, um, mushrooms all tested extremely low. Um, and, um, one of the things I think I alluded to earlier is that there are some mushroom extracts that have been shown to reduce allergy. So they actually reduce the amount of histamine released from mast cells. Um, so they're inhibiting mast cell activation and that, um, Certainly I'd I i have not seen again, there's right, there's not a test, right? There have been um studies looking at supplementing with D oxidase in histamine intolerance or allergy and shown some benefit. We don't have a if you take Chaga or Hen of the Woods uh extracts in histamine intolerance whether or not that improves it but there is studies showing in other allergy models that it can reduce allergy symptoms so um so hen of the woods and chaga in particular have been shown to have a antihistaminogenic effect
0: fascinating yeah right mushrooms are awesome and i love I'm- that they've broken down Studies at that level of like type of mushroom which might help certain things. So, um, now everybody's going to be Googling
1: where, where to find out of the woods. So, well, I will make sure, um, in our show notes, uh, let's make sure to link to I have two blog posts one just about the benefits of mushrooms, but also a sort of intro to medicinal mushrooms that breaks down a lot of the different effects of different well studied medicinal mushrooms. So, um, our listeners, if you're looking for a specific benefit from it, right. From a specific type, you know, if there's something specific you're looking for, that will help at least get you started again. You know, I, I always recommend talking to a healthcare provider. Um, but I think, um, I think one of the things that I, I personally have really, um, embraced real mushrooms, mushroom extracts, Um, And the reason for me is, you know, while I'm, I certainly um, am, you know, taking turkey tail, which is, you know, one of the most anti-inflammatory ones, right? Like I, I like, um, I am looking for that level of effect from them. For me, it's mostly a way to expand my mushroom variety. So it's an easy way to make sure that I am getting those beneficial compounds from mushrooms on a day that I'm maybe not going to cook it into a meal. And then it's also a way of going from, you know, the four or five different kinds of mushrooms I can get into the grocery store to 10 or 12 different kinds of mushrooms. Um, and that to me is is really appealing. I am looking forward
0: to expanding my consumption with real mushrooms i have a bunch that i am working through and i'm curious to see especially from the digestive sensitivities that i have um as well as like inflammation and stuff if i am gonna see a difference without
1: needing to be oh,
0: posted a, without needing to do a fecal transplant
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Uh, fecal microbiota transplants, pretty cool, but we should do a whole show about that because there's a, there's a lot of, uh, considerations. So I will say we started off the show with
0: me wondering if I could figure out why I was craving something. And, um, obviously there's a lot of benefits to mushrooms that maybe my body is craving and I'm not sure why, but, While we have talked about bowel movements several times, I will reference, we talked about this once a really long time ago on the show, um, and I don't even remember in what context, but you shared that there is science to support that during a menstrual cycle, there's a period of time where you have less bowel movements, and then you have more bowel movements.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's driven by your progesterone. So when your progesterone uh, plummets three to four days before your period, that actually slows transit and can cause temporary semi-constipation, if not for some people, full constipation. And then when your period starts and your progesterone starts coming up again, it's uh, open for business. So I'm wondering if that could be something that my body is also
0: aware of thinking about
1: Trying to like, remove fiber yeah yeah so anyway also, it might just be the flavor enhancing Wait. impact
0: right <laughs> the the, the, it, the total umami deliciousness of n- kneading mushrooms with steak I'm not saying that yes. that isn't what's happening and <laughs> the same with chocolate for example like I could tell you that my body wants the magnesium Or I could just say, I'm cranky and I want chocolate. It could be both. Mm -hmm. You know, they could be both. Anyway, what I'm learning is that... um it's not a bad thing <laughs> to add mushrooms. <laughs> so.
1: It is definitely not a bad thing.
0: Awesome. Well, I know I said it kind of prematurely, but I want to rethink Real Mushrooms for sponsoring the show again. Um, if you need a link, because it is different than our usual link, they will be in the show notes. And you can always refer back to those on either of our websites, thepaleomom.com or realeverything.com. You can also just go directly to realmushrooms.com slash LP dash the paleo view and get 25% off the mushroom extracts, the mushroom chocolate. I'm going to give Wesley and all of the other <laughs> things that could give you extra variety in your diet. If you want to add more mushrooms. Well, thanks
1: for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the paleo view. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Due to a variety of a confluence of events, my kids had never learned how to ride bikes. Um, It basically was Adele's sensory processing disorder created a phobia, so we couldn't ever get her onto a bike. And then because she wasn't a bike rider, we just kind of never even tried with Mira because uh, they would just go on a scooter. Like scooters were fine. Bikes were not. And then we're like, Oh, this is a life skill. You like, you have to, you have to like not drown <laughs> if you fall in a lake and you have to like be able to ride a bike. So my mother-in-law bought us all bikes for Christmas this year. And we've been, uh, I'd read a really good article out of some like Portland, Oregon, you know, publication about how to teach older kids, how to ride bikes. Hmm. And, uh, this past weekend, they both mastered it finally. Nice. So, uh, I am, I've officially erased a failure as a parent to make it a success as a parent. And, uh, I believe that's it. That's all I need to do. (laughs) I'm officially a good parent. My kids can ride bikes.
0: We told the kids that when they could tie their shoes, ride a bike and swim independently we would give them a hundred dollars it was like really motivation for cole and finn like (laughs) they hit it before kindergarten wesley my fourth grader still doesn't tie his shoes Mm -hmm. he can swim but not like i wouldn't trust him in a current you know and has real no motivation to go from like training wheel bike riding to on his own. So when you say failure as a parent, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I did too good, right?
1: <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's a pass. That's... Two out of three is a pass. Um, we'll I, think get you're, there. I think you're fine. No, I mean, Adele also, um, she just wanted to wear Velcro forever. And then I think it was in fourth grade that I, ref- I was like, your feet are too big there's no velcro shoes for you anymore he you must learn wesley
0: wears like slip-on shoes like vans and stuff you know and so and he loves ugg boots and so he he like never practices because the type of shoes that he likes doesn't have ties and i'm sure part of that is because whatever but even the shoes because he doesn't have to tie them yeah but Finn and cole they just slip on their tennis shoes they never actually tie them every time but i'm like this is a life skill (laughs) you You need to learn. Anyway, so, yes.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.